0: The future has come to pass.
1: everybody. Welcome to episode three of I Survived the Rapture as we enter the home stretch on Left Behind, a novel of Earth's last days. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell, along here with your ecumenical fanboy Gavin Russell. Great to be here. All right, Gav. How's it going, man? Pretty good. Uh, the final third of this book gets wild. <laughs> Yep. It's a lot. Yeah. We, Hey, we got everything you want. We got prophecy. We got evil devil powers. We got murder. We got very, very awkward dinner conversation. We got something for everybody in the final third of this book.
2: You got uh, um, budding romances
1: starting too. It's, it's, Oh yeah, we got meat cutes. We got meet cutes. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to give everybody a fair warning before we get into this one. Um, we had some ground to cover last episode, and that has only carried over into this one. The back half of this book is jam-packed, full of things happening, and for those of you that are reading along, uh, you will know that. Um, so we're going to do our best to cover everything in this book today, but um, we're going to have to go at a really good clip. So if we don't stop and zero in on every little bit here, because we got a lot to cover. So yeah, I'm I'm rip-roaring ready to go here. I got my monster energy drink um, representing um, the evil one, the adversary, Satan himself, um, with my 666 energy drink. What you drinking there, Gav? Uh I am
2: actually drinking some Clover Valley purified drinking water.
1: Ah, so okay. Just just like they contrast. had in That's the that's the official brand of the Garden of Eden. So we have yeah. a <laughs> We have We got some nice duality here. The opposing forces. Yeah, yeah. I love how we're sliding into those roles very effectively. Uh I'm going to
2: wake up in a few weeks and just have on a pilot's outfit just ready to go. <laughs>
1: I still haven't um, become the editor of a a leading magazine, but I feel like I would probably make less money than I do now because no one reads magazines anymore. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about where we left off last week. So the threads of the story are starting to come together. Um, we left our boy Buck in his meeting with Nikolai Carpathia, um, the rising political star, president of Romania. And they had a little conversation. They were talking about how Buck has gone and gotten himself mixed up in a conspiracy and gotten himself in trouble. And Nikolai offered to make all those problems go away. And then we have our other point of view character, our great big boy Rayford Steele, noticing something on CNN. So you want to talk about that for a minute? Uh,
2: yeah. So uh, switches on CNN, broadcasting live from Jerusalem at the Wailing Wall, and you got old Moshi and Eli there, the two prophets. And something interesting about them is they didn't know. These guys don't have last names, no city of origin, no family or friends, nothing. All they all they proclaim is where we come from and where we go you cannot know in my father's house there are many mansions
1: yeah so these two guys show up at the wailing wall and are just preaching proclaiming jesus christ to be the messiah and everybody just sort of watches it on cnn and is like oh that's weird we're soon going to find out in a section that i like to call the prophecy dump these guys are very important to the actual revelation prophecy and this is one of the first instances of the literal translation of prophecy coming to pass in this series. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the two witnesses who will proclaim the divinity of Jesus and the beginnings of the Jewish remnant, which is the 144,000 Jews who are prophesied to turn to Christ during the tribulation.
2: And these guys are so important that some guys tried to um, uh, kill them. One has an like an Uzi and the other one has a knife. And as soon as they get up to him, the Uzi starts jamming and like the other guy just seizes up and um, uh, they, they fall to their feet.
1: Yeah. And everybody sees it happen on CNN and we're starting to see that CNN and cable news in general is used as kind of an expository device. That's not really going to change. Um, You're going to get a lot of exposition through news stories throughout the series, even more than you've gotten now.
2: Yep. And uh, these guys, um, they're kind of unfazed almost by this assassination um, uh, attempt. He's like, men of Zion, pick up your dead. Remove um, um, from before us these jackals who have no power over us.
1: Which, honestly, that's some Old Testament metal. Just like, get these dudes out of (laughs) here.
2: Honestly. Honestly, these guys so far are some of my favorites in the story. Oh yeah, e- Eli and
1: that- don't play, and uh, if you like them now, you're gonna like them even more later. Um, I was just gonna move us along a little bit because um, we have a little bit more of the political backdrop stuff. The president of the United States endorses Nikolai Carpathia, um, and then they have a discussion, Buck and Nikolai, where he mentions that he is going to make sure that all the unpleasantness goes away, like we talked about last week. Mm-hmm but he has a very important confession. He says, hey, I understand that you are suspecting Jonathan Stonegal and Todd Cothran, my two financiers, of some wrongdoing. I'm not part of that wrongdoing, and it's very important. I promise you, I am going to take care of it. So hold that in your brain, because that's going to come back later. Oh, yeah, and
2: uh, an interesting... And uh, during this meeting, too... Uh, you have Hattie is in, uh, is in the meeting with Carpathia and uh, Buck, and she actually gets his number. <laughs> I thought that was a very funny uh, uh, little bit. You're
1: right. She does, she does get his number. He gives her not just his regular number, his, like, special bypass the secretary office number.
2: Right. And uh, she's speechless. She's, like, head over heels. Like, yeah, she, he even kisses her hand. Like, um, Carpathia's giving Hattie the works. Oh, yeah, like, he's Carpathia- putting
1: the whammy on her for sure.
2: Let's see. And uh, let's see. Buck wondered if he had ever taken a Carnegie course, um, course on how to win friends and influence people. So Carpathia is just showing his charm, like out the wazoo.
1: Right. Um, totally. Yeah. Now, during this, as another important plot point, Nikolai brings up what his plan is for the UN, which is that total nuclear disarmament, except for 10% of the world's nukes that are going to go to the UN, basically giving the UN power to keep all the other countries in line. A seven year peace agreement with israel mm-hmm. in exchange for use of dr rosenzweig's formula if you're not familiar with the prophecy side that seven years is significant
2: right the the first guy that is even getting um the uh, access to the israeli uh, fertilizer formula is the secretary General Nagumo. Neg- Neg- One of the leaders of Botswana,
1: I believe. Yeah, the current secretary general of the UN. Mm -hmm. Um, So he's giving Botswana the access to the formula first. And that's also going to come into play a little bit later. Mm -hmm. So from here with the political stuff, we jump back to New Hope and a meeting with Ray and Bruce and kind of the core group. And this is where we hit the prophecy dump. I would love to spend an entire episode on this, um, but since it's going to all get unfurled throughout the rest of the series, we don't really have to. Just know that if you want to go back and do some side reading for this, Revelation is pretty fascinating. We learned through Bruce's flip charts that the seven judgments of the seals, the seven judgments of the trumpets, and the seven judgments of the vials are all going to occur during this seven-year period called the Tribulation, and which is to be followed by a glorious appearing of Christ and a millennial reign, where Christ is going to come back and rule on earth, not in heaven, for a thousand years and make this perfect kingdom on earth. All this is in Revelation. Hmm. And we also get, I think, the first mention of a very, very, very important phrase related to a character in the book. We hear the term Antichrist.
2: Right, and this is uh, yeah, this is the first uh, uh, like discussion of many about who the Antichrist is.
1: They have a discussion because they talk about how, and I don't know when you were growing up if how much the word Antichrist got thrown around, but we talked a little bit about this last week. It was assigned to every major political figure that ever came on on the world stage. Right. But their particular interpretation of it is he's slick. He's a man of peace. He's a smooth talker. He's going to get all the world to cooperate. All these very, very bad things. These are all obviously (laughs) horrible things that should never come to pass. And even in the room, uh, like we talked about last week, uh, everybody goes, what about this Carpathia guy? And even the most devout Christians go, nah yeah man this guy this guy um uh he's 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 the
2: sexiest man of the year he's got um uh like interviews with everyone no no man this is just he's 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 a great guy
1: and then we learn about the idea that launched like a thousand tropes and uh, a thousand fantasy characters and metal bands and tattoos, Uh, we learn about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So the four horsemen, the first one is strife and what the four horsemen are kind of gets muddled in popular culture. But according to Tim LaHaye's interpretation of prophecy, there is the white horse, which is strife and confusion. That is the Antichrist. He is a conqueror who comes in the midst of strife and brings the world to heal. Um, you have war, which is the red horse who comes, you know, to to bring death and destruction. Famine, the, the black horse that is the horse of want and need and uh, scarcity. And then you have the horse of death, the behold a pale horse. You know, the Johnny Cash lyrics, you get to hear um, about the horse of death. And by the end of these four horsemen appearing, which are the first uh, four seals that are open the first four seal judgments uh, a quarter of the world's population is going to be dead
2: right and then you have the sixth seal judgment which is uh, god pouring out his wrath against the killing of the saints uh, this is bruce words um, this will come in the form of a worldwide earthquake so devastating that no instruments would be able to measure it it'll be so bad that the people will cry out for rocks to fall on them and put them out of their misery which is, like, great. That's super mm-hmm. cool and good. And then finally, of the seventh seal, which introduces the seven trumpet judgments, will take place in the second quarter of the seven-year period.
1: Yeah, one thing that's interesting about the judgments is that the last seal or the last trumpet always is the, is the opening act for the next set of judgments. So the seventh seal gets opened, and it's basically an angel saying... All right, uh, we're going to have a short intermission here. Stick around, folks. We got the seven trumpet judgments coming up right now.
2: Yeah, it is kind of like an act, two. Like, yeah, there's, there's the brief kind of uh, period, and then, and then you just got um,
1: uh, 21 months of... Uh, of just awfulness. Right. Now, we're not going to be privy to any of that in this book. Um, we're not going to get there. But we do have that to look forward to. And so without getting into spoiler territory, The judgments themselves are bonkers and wild and crazy. So we have a lot to see as we move forward in the story. So then we hear about the two witnesses, how they're going to prophesy for three and a half years, which happens to be half of the seven-year tribulation, before Satan will kill them and they will rise again from the dead. All very specific stuff. and.
2: and uh, me and you are coming um, at this at slightly different angles because you've read the book books completely before, and I don't know much. I have some, I have some theories on these guys that, like, per- like I feel like these guys were just like sent to Earth in in the story, like they weren't necessarily born. A part of me just wants to say they're literal incarnates of uh, Old Testament figures, but that's just a, a hunch I have.
1: I actually think that that's implied. Um, Uh I don't remember if they specifically put the, put that, that on the nose, like if they say specifically that that happened, but I think that's, I think you're absolutely picking up on what's meant to be implied that they Uh are a reincarnation or a, you know, a version of Moses or Elisha or somebody who's sent down specifically for this purpose. Right. Which, uh. Good fan fiction, bro. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, as far as Christian fan fiction goes, it reads very well. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of stuff that plays directly to that evangelical fan fiction audience because it's happening in Israel. Um, These are two um, almost reincarnations of Old Testament prophets. If anybody messes with them, they get immediately struck dead. Um, It's Old Testament metal that really sort of appeals to that like fire and brimstone kind of stuff so it's really it's really kind of neat
2: yeah uh let's see so next after the whole uh um, carpathia thing unless you want to zoom in on that meeting a little bit more oh no i'm past i'm
1: past the meeting now
2: okay gotcha all right so now we have
1: i have buck meeting with steve gotcha okay yeah that'll that'll work Buck meets with Steve uh, back at the Global. They are having a conversation about the future of the magazine. They meet with the executive or the um, the owner of the magazine, um, the publisher of the magazine, rather. Steve is going to be stepping down as executive editor and they offer Buck his job. Mm -hmm. And Buck says, hey, I think I need some time to contemplate that. I've just been through a lot. And they also throw in, yeah, by the way, why aren't the cops chasing you anymore? Um, It seems like only a couple of chapters ago, we were having to trade identities and run from the cops, but it just magically went away. So they kind of try to lampshade that a little bit. We also find out, and I had forgotten that this was plot relevant, that Eric Miller, the other author, the other journalist that Buck had had his tussle with in the hallway of the hotel before getting to Nikolai, right, uh, wound up dead.
2: Yeah, he's been cashed. Yeah, um, it fell fell right off the Staten Island ferry. Right, and uh, that that little plot, like that, will be something that they uh, they were, they repeat a few more times as we keep going on. That's uh that's a, a crucial figure, and it's in no way a
1: uh, link to um, uh, Dark Barton at all. <laughs> Another <laughs> character just mysteriously dying. now? not at all. <laughs> and that's going to bring us into the section where we have kind of our players set up for the final act here. Buck is given access to Carpathia, specifically through Steve. He is also giving Hattie access to Carpathia through his connections and their connection to Rosenzweig. Rayford is starting to fulfill his role as a core member at the church. Mm -hmm. But Buck and Hattie are going to meet, so all these threads are kind of starting to get pulled and come together. Specifically, I wanted to point a couple things out. One of them is apparently Mother Teresa got raptured. This was written before her passing, um, which I find really interesting because obviously she's a, just a Catholic saint
2: right which uh that th- uh that gets more into the whole catholic bashing which they uh they do a little bit in this section like there's there's one specific line that I I um uh, when we get to it I'll mention it where they uh they they throw another
1: uh jab at the pope but yeah yeah I didn't pick up on that that's that's wild <laughs> it's it's interesting and I wanted to to call it out because like you said you, there's been so much catholic bashing why mother teresa I think that they just threw that in there because when you think very very holy and and um you know important christian figure
2: yeah cuz she's kind of like an archetypal like um uh like symbol of piety like any time uh, like oh you think you are mother teresa like she's that kind of like yeah. she's uh, synonymous with piety and with. benevolence
1: <laughs> yeah and which i I think I do need to go on record here in saying that in certain circles, there's been a lot of journalism done around how she actually lived and the things that she was actually promoting um, that may not have been as overall benevolent or may have had some negative side effects. So I'm not I'm not on this podcast to bash Mother Teresa. There have been several journalists that have done a lot of looking into her life and the way she uh, the way she cared for people and that doesn't quite hold up to scrutiny so do your own research it's worth looking into it's a fascinating topic
0: Mm -hmm.
1: so we see the um like you said the the witnesses are attacked they the attackers are killed and then like i said earlier we start to have confluence of characters everybody's gonna meet in new york um they Mm -hmm. show up ray and chloe show up in new york to have the meeting with hattie which we get more hattie bashing Uh, She seemed dim at times, and she was only a physical diversion. (laughs) Right, yeah, like... (laughs) And, like, it doesn't get better. We start in with what I'm calling Hattie bashing by way of exposition, Mm -hmm. where the other characters stop bad-mouthing her, or they, they rather, they don't stop, because they continue to say, like, oh, she's terrible. The the authors just start writing her as bad, you know, Mm -hmm. as ditzy, dumb, easily influenced... Um, she's just written as just this terrible character.
2: Which, uh, to briefly touch on this, that gets just worse in book two from what I've read so far. It does. Like, it, just, but we'll get there when we get to it. It's just like, this, this is just a prelude to um, uh, um uh, Hattie's, like, uh, character change.
1: Yeah, they refer to Hattie as a groupie. Um, when it comes to Nikolai.
2: Right. And like, even like with some of the dialogue, um, I noticed with, uh, when Hattie's like talking about, um, uh, like how excited she is to find, like, to be able to get there. Like Buck is just like, man, I, I-, I blew it. Like, I'm just, uh, I'm getting all these, uh, groupies on Carpathia is not going to like me just cause I want to introduce a fan to him.
1: Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, specifically the word groupie just made me go, ugh. <laughs> right. This is another, another just involuntary interjection of the week for me. I think my defining word was ugh. You yeah. <laughs> got oof, yikes, and ugh. And uh, I think it had gross last week. I think gross. Yeah,
2: gro- gross was the archetypal second one. I'm
1: running out of interjections, but this week was just ugh. <laughs> <laughs> because for all the crazy action and where the plot goes in this final section, we're still reading Left Behind. So I've, oh, I have another one. It's, Come on, man. <laughs> That's my other one. So you'll, you'll get a couple of the lines that I pointed out as, come on, man. Right. Um, so Buck, after this other meeting with Carpathia, decides to take the editor job,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is very important and is going to come up in the plot later. I'm saying that a lot this episode. Right, um, because a lot of this stuff is planting seeds that are almost immediately going to pay off. Not to spend a minute bashing Jerry B. Jenkins' writing. I mean, the guy's written how many did you say? 170? 170,
2: uh, more than one hundred and seventy-five. Oh my um, God, uh,
1: Stephen King, unbelievable!
2: I wonder if his other books get as like cr- like convoluted as this. I
1: don't know. We'll I, have
2: to. We'll have to. Look part of me actually that. wants
1: to grab another one of his books that's not in this series and just see what it's all about. Cause I know LaHaye um, partnered with another author to write a series. I think it's called Babylon Rising, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I don't know how it's related or if it's related to the series at all. I'll have to have to take a look at it sometime. Um, so we're back to Ray, um, more Rayford hand wringing, um, worried about Hattie, worried about Chloe, worried, worried, worried. This is all that Rayford does for several chapters is talk to Bruce and be worried about people in his life he starts going into his um, suspicions surrounding Carpathia that anyone talking about peace and unity is automatically suspect, mm-hmm. which I immediately went, ugh. So I actually wanted to hear what you think about that, about that evangelical specific worry about people preaching peace and unity. How did that strike
2: you? Uh, well, that's actually pretty, like, relevant because that's some that I, that I have to, like, encounter a lot just because um. uh the, the, they, I all because um, you know I kind of lean. Um, uh, well, no, not lean. I am. I'm pretty uh, left at uh, times, and that's that's a thing. Like, oh, you're just being deceived by all. Like, um, that's a common line that's thrown. Oh, you're just being deceived by all those people. So that's really kind of hammering in um, a lot of like you know because you know we've already established that this has a very um, anti liberal bias of how it talks about characters yeah it's and, very right-wing uh, stuff yeah, very right-wing and even there's this one part where like they even says like, i may even say straight out like buck was just like man i always thought evangelical was um uh it was tied to ultra
1: white right-wingers like that when we oh get yeah, that, yeah. i wrote that again. down too
2: yeah it's it's that sort of feel um that i i personally get from it
1: yeah i i noticed that too and it's this I think for a lot of, um, at least the the intended audience for this book, but also with the authors in mind as well, the idea of globalism or countries getting along, you know, trade. And I mean, this is coming off of like NAFTA. This is the late 90s. So this worry about a new world order or a one world government and things like that, it was this worry about American exceptionalism and American sovereignty going away. Mm -hmm. They sort of assumed that anyone who was preaching peace Wanted to take our nukes away and wanted to open us up to the commies. That was, that was basically, I think, what the, the post-Cold War, post-Reagan and Thatcher idea was, was that anyone preaching world peace automatically means disarmament. Disarmament means a loss of sovereignty and a loss of superiority. Mm-hmm kind of like a i the the similar refrain you hear about things like you know socialism means you're going to take away my ability to be superior that you hear on the right a lot so i that's i think that's kind of built in to this narrative so moving forward which uh, which chapter are we in right
2: now just for reference
1: we are in i
2: Have, have uh is are we are we getting to 21 where the the threads go um um go all together are we in 20 right now
1: i think i'm in 19 right now
2: 19 oh, okay gotcha yeah
1: okay so i have uh ray calling bruce they actually call out the three big books of prophecy and this is something that we're gonna keep coming back to um as we talk about in the intro that the big books of prophecy that LaHaye is kind of relying on here revelation daniel and ezekiel you got it all yep. three those are the big ones so they talk about prophecy they talk about the witnesses Um, Apparently, people are falling down before the witnesses and converting to Christ. All these Jews in Israel are hearing the witnesses speak, and they're instantly converting. Mm -hmm. Ray is still praying and hand-wringing, like we said, over Chloe and Hattie. Um, we switch back to Buck. He felt naked without his old equipment bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor guy. He doesn't have his MacGyver bag with him. I'm naked. I can't plug into the phones. They, they pull Steve and uh, Buck into the office and we get a little bit more exposition. Um, Steve is automatically starting to become a little bit more cagey around what Nikolai is planning because um, he's in the inner circle now. They talk about how Nikolai wants to move the united nations
2: oh god and this was where like when i first did the the my my first read through i was like oh no they're not (laughs) Uh, because yeah they are yeah they want to move it to babylon (laughs) yeah that that just brings flashbacks of like phrases of uh, what was it saddam hussein being a little uh, a mini nebuchadnezzar is something i would hear thrown around like because even in the, the holy
1: crap you're taking me back <laughs> you're the, so at the,
2: right at the at the at the, be- at the end of actually the the book it actually goes into like a lot of stuff about saddam hussein in iraq um uh in the uh, i guess the epilogue of book one in the revised um,
1: edition definitely. yeah yeah
2: yeah um let's see yeah and uh that's something that i was told like like that was uh that was supposed to be like the gotcha like when whenever uh religion and politics would be brought up in the same in the same bit and they would talk about like biblical prophecy nebuchadnezzar would always be like that was the gotcha like that was the okay so you can you you, you see what we're trying to do here like kind right of thing thrown at you
1: and to kind of extend an olive branch for, for our listeners who may not be as, as up on, um, you know, the Old Testament stuff, you know, maybe you didn't grow up in church or, you know, just didn't particularly have this drilled into your head. The city of Babylon or the, the kingdom of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar, major figures specifically in the book of Daniel. And they refigure again in Revelation, specifically talking about Babylon the Great, the harlot, um, the beast, all of these coded ideas, which I mean, a lot of scholars would say were for things like the Roman Empire at the time, but our prophecy heads will look at these as literal. When especially in the 90s and the early 2000s, especially around um, Operation Iraqi Freedom, we would hear things from pastors saying like, oh, we're living in the end times and be like, how do you know that? It was like, oh, yes, yeah, smart guy. Uh, why are we having a big war in the middle of the ancient site of Babylon? So Christians firmly believe that the Iraq, the second Iraq war, I mean, even the first Gulf War, that conflict were direct fulfillments of prophecy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, moving the UN to Babylon, calling it New Babylon. New
2: Babylon, uh, the establish of a one religion for the world. So they moved the Baha'i International House of Worship, I guess, to New Babylon. I guess. Like, those, <laughs> they, they said they're going to headquarter it in Italy. Oh, okay, gotcha. I, so I guess they're going to take over Vatican City.
1: Yeah, I think they, yeah, yeah, that's, I think the plan. Um, There's a little bit of your low key Catholic bashing is that if there's going to be a one world religion that is a false faith to compete with true Christianity, it's going to be Catholicism. Right. Or some sort of warped form of Catholicism, which no spoilers, but stay tuned.
2: (laughs) And uh, just a a little note Carpathia is actually going to talk about all of this on the Tonight Show. Oh, that never happens on screen,
1: but, you know, that's. Yeah, the Tonight Show. I'm sorry, the Tonight Show producers would never let him do all this. Right. They'd be like, hey, can we stick to some softball questions about, like, you know, what you think of the Marvel movies or something? Like, the Tonight Show is not a place to unveil, like, hard-hitting political and journalistic moments. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I should have looked up ahead of time who would have been the host of the Tonight Show at the time. Was it Leno? Was Leno? What year was this? I don't remember... This would have been, I think, 99, but I'll vamp if you want to look that up and see who the... Let's see. Who is the... Oh, Jay Leno, yeah. Oh, my God. Can you imagine Jay Leno talking to Nikolai (laughs) Karpathia? Yeah, that that sounds really interesting. You're going to put everybody together after everybody disappeared and... uh... Uh, bring everybody, make them believe the same thing. I don't uh, think, uh, you know, my brother's a Scientologist. I don't think he didn't uh, appreciate that very oh much. God. Oh, God, can you imagine, <laughs> like... I'm sorry for subjecting everybody to my impromptu Jay Leno impression, because that's oh. aged well. <laughs> went over, like, half the audience heads. Like, I was like, what the... What the was <laughs> he doing with his voice? So, uh, going on.
2: Um, let's see. Hattie comes in. Um, oh, no, Hattie, like, buzzes... Uh, buck and says hey like you're taking too long in here and so then he starts wrapping up a little bit
1: right and we hear about how the carpathia story ends up being so important that they almost want to bump buck's massive rapture story back so they can talk more about carpathia I don't think that actually goes through because Buck ends up writing kind of both the stories at the same time, but we start seeing the world come, become more and more infatuated with Carpathia. And then we find out the story that Eric Miller was working uh, on.
2: Yeah, the, the, I actually have this highlight. The title of Miller's series was New Babylon, Stone Latest Dream.
1: Uh-oh. What is it about all these people getting close to this Stoneagle guy ending up dead? Hmm. So we're going to have some people with theories as we go forward. I just want to also point out the demands that Carpathia is making, which we've already gone over. I don't care if we were in the midst of a literal alien invasion like from Independence Day. There is no way that the United Nations could exert enough power or that any nation of the world would agree to this. This is a complete contrivance. Like, th- I don't think the audience is meant to think it's a contrivance. And I feel like this is a portion where the books really are talking down to their audience. So I'm going to be a little bit less nice about this. Because as you and I have talked about with the pseudo-Dutero idea, mm-hmm. a lot of people took this really seriously. They thought that the UN could start to strong arm the rest of the world, specifically America. That can literally never happen. And that they're going to be brought into this one world government, also incredibly unlikely. But that became this refrain that we heard all the time. And I blame these books and books like them. Yeah.
2: And uh, yeah, that's where um, uh, when they would start uh, hearing like New World Order thrown around a lot, definitely this contributed to all that and like just helped fuel this like weird paranoid hysteria. To- Toward some of these like ludicrous yep. like doomsday ideas
1: and it's still relevant today like you're still you're oh, still
2: God, hearing especially it. this year like I- i've heard it this year like more than
1: ever um probably yep all goes back to new world order stuff mm-hmm. um and man if only george hw bush hadn't said those three words in a speech we would be living in a different world now. They probably would have called it something else, but we wouldn't hear New World Order all the time. Right? Which, yeah, the only NWO we'd have to be worried about would be in wrestling. So we we crest over the hill into Chapter 20. Um, So we get about five chapters, five or so chapters to go. And Ray and Chloe meet Hattie. Um, Buck comes along with Hattie to the meeting and we get our meet cute. Let's see. Um, this is, I have a weird
2: uh, thing, but I think I may have like somehow accidentally ch- uh, skipped chapter 20 when I was reading. Cause I have nothing highlighted this entire chapter.
1: <laughs> oh man. Well, let me tell you, it is some lady in the tramp soft focus adorable little quirky um, manic pixie dream girl energy all over the Buck and Chloe portion of this chapter. (laughs) Tell tell me about what happens here. All right, so Buck sees Chloe, um, a woman 10 years younger than him, and is immediately stunned. Uh, They go for a walk in the terminal, and he's all sweaty and awkward. like, Oh, this is where all this begins. Yeah, dude. So they start kind of flirting, and like, because... Ray needs to talk to Hattie. They're like, hey, we'll leave you guys alone in the club. We're going to walk around the terminal like you do, I guess. The, I mean, because remember, this is pre-9-11, so the airport ends up being even more like a mall mm-hmm. um, at this point. So they go to the, uh, I'm going to headcanon this, that Buck and Chloe go to a great American cookie um, because they go to a cookie stand or a cookie restaurant, a place where you can get cookies in the terminal. And uh, Buck wipes chocolate off of Chloe's mouth with his fingers, this woman he just met, and eats it. Oh, <laughs> you know, like... Just get that visual, because still, Buck is still Kirk Cameron in my head. Get that visual out of your head. Just just curly-haired Kirk Cameron, just reaching out with his thumb, wicking uh, a glob of chocolate off of a woman's face who he's just met, and putting it in his mouth.
2: And I guess it was just love at first bite. <laughs> <laughs> based on how this evolves
1: god yeah it gets it gets rough so they have some what i guess passes for banter back and forth basically it's like you're old well you're young well you're old and like i really wanted it to be cute but it's just super uncomfortable and awkward he leans really hard into how infatuated buck is instantly with this girl and it is a weird sharp turn because Buck at this point has been basically asexual and then immediately sees Chloe and has, like, tech savory eyes, like,
2: that seems to be, like, a theme anytime like, uh, our, our leads um, are exposed to, uh, I guess, their love interest. They just go, like, full-blown, like, oh, yeah, like you're saying, like, full-blown awuga, like, right then.
1: Yeah, the the heart beating out of the chest, like, full Tex Avery cartoon. Now, contrast that, Ray talking to Hattie, and his Genuinely and honestly trying to both cover for being kind of a dumbass and mishandling the flirting and the affair. Because Hattie's thankfully not as dumb as the writers are writing her. It's a little inconsistent. She knows what's up. She's like, look, there was something there. We both knew there was something there. And she calls him out on it. So he's on his back foot. Mm -hmm. He kind of has to cover over that while putting his foot in his mouth several times, and then has to get into his witnessing. Ah, oh, yeah. Um, where he lays it all out for her. He's, he's very sincere, and it, it spends a lot of time in Ray's perspective where he's feeling awkward. Mm-hmm. He's feeling like he's tripping over his words, which I'm going to choose to believe is an attempt by the authors to try and connect with how actual Christians might feel especially new ones sharing their faith because this is something they talk about a lot in church or at least when I was growing up is like hey you're gonna feel weird you're gonna feel awkward
0: mm-hmm. so
1: if you're not coming at this as a Christian that might be a little weird like why are they writing him this way he is otherwise written as kind of a hyper competent hero why is he suddenly tongue-tied and you know has butterflies and everything and it's not because of Hattie it's because this is supposed to be relatable to newer Christians or folks who have to other people very early on in their journey of having faith
2: yeah and that's uh you know i think that's something that like uh, you know i think more than just christians will start we might be able to connect to that because like once you start getting into like the whole spiritual side of life when you're trying to like convince someone else like of uh of anything you start you you will kind of feel kind of awkward because you're trying to like essentially be like hey there's a whole layer of reality that like you might not know about. And so that, so I think that that might be where some of our non-Christian listeners might be able to find uh, the connection point too.
1: Yeah. And I think that's true. You're right. That's true of anybody who has any sort of spiritual belief or faith kind of trying to explain it. If the opportunity arises, anyone who is not the guy at the party, who's cornering you being like, listen, bro, I got to tell you something, bro. Like for, for real, there's, there's ghost elves. If you do some DMT, bro um like that guy that guy has transforming elf machines (laughs) that guy that guy listens to too much rogan and has no problem telling you all about his spiritual journey but for a lot of people you know especially in the more mainstream religions or they may be a little more casual but if it's somebody you care about which ray is written to clearly care about hattie it Mm -hmm. can be awkward it can be weird because this is something that he cares about and he wants her soul to be saved. So, but he doesn't quite have the toolkit. Um, you know, he's not a, he's not a pastor. He's just, he's speaking from the heart this guy and it's actually pretty admirable. Yeah,
2: you know, and like, that's one of the things I've noticed about Rayford when he is like, um, uh, given a shtick is like, sometimes after he, he gives it, like he feels like, and we'll get into this in the dinner party, which is next chapter, but he'll almost feel like a little bit unsatisfied. Like he didn't say the right things. Like, um, uh, uh, and sort of thing. So he's always like he's always aware that what he's saying is a little bit out there, but it's what he act. He honestly believes.
1: Yeah, totally. And you mentioned the dinner party. So why don't you transition us into chapter twenty one?
2: Well, finally, all of the streams connect, and you have Buck and Chloe reconnected with Hattie and Chloe's father. It was clear that Hattie had been crying. Buck didn't feel close enough uh, to ask what was wrong, and she never offered. Uh, And then Buck um, uh, goes in to give an interview with Rayford over dinner.
1: And it's a swanky dinner. Right. Yeah. And this is one of
2: the moments that I even noticed, like how much like money is being thrown around like one um, before they even get their buck like up, upgrades his seat to be right next to chloe and then like starts putting on his best suit and tie and um uh, had he spend like a long time in um uh in a beauty salon chloe is just looking like in this amazing dress like everyone is swanky they spend a lot of money to be swanky yeah she's in like an evening
1: a- gown like it, this yeah. is almost black tie this restaurant mm-hmm. that they're at, which is is written so weirdly and the fact that the that jenkins feels the need to say oh yeah by the way chloe looked five years older in her evening dress i just went Ugh. Ugh right and uh, what you what you said about it's like black I mean, it literally is black
2: tie like even remarks like you wouldn't have gotten into this thing if you if you weren't like dressed to the
1: heels yeah which is so weird and i know we i think we pointed this out either last week or the week before the perspective is written from a place of privilege we have mm-hmm. we have well to do um folks houses in the suburbs very um lucrative professional jobs They have access to money. They may not be considered wealthy, but they are definitely upwardly mobile. This is an absolute Clinton years story, like Mm -hmm. booming economy. They got money to burn. So that kind of puts them in relation to your Stoneagles and your Cawthrans, the guys who have enough money to control the world imagine what insane amounts of money those guys
2: have right and uh then you start getting into the actual uh dinner party uh rayford starts having this weird like doubt because like chloe and hattie are getting close he's like i want i hope hattie's not trying to turn chloe against me
1: yeah which is really weird that was weird
2: yeah and then Rayford sees Hattie and like doesn't even like comment on like how she looks he's like i'm not going down that path again uh, again weird <laughs> like not even going to be like hey you look nice
1: yeah like you can't even compliment her like you've spent this entire book sexualizing this woman and then now you're that is it's a very christian like evangelical thing um that you hear in like promise keepers and stuff like that which is a, a men's organization for um in I think it might just be as simple as a God. It was something that I grew up around. Ugh. This idea of like not looking at women lustfully and whatever. But it's like, dude, you can say like to this person who you supposedly care about that spent a lot of time on her appearance. Hey, you look nice, man. Like, hey, right, you look great. I mean, it, it's okay. Especially if you're going to consider her a friend, like compliment. Hey guys, normalize complimenting your friends. Normalize telling your friends they're hot exactly like it's fine it's not going to kill you and it's it doesn't mean that you're married now right it, it
2: helps it helps boost your friend's confidence that's your super friend's bugged fun, me man
1: like that really bugged me and it's because it's so it really is very regressive like you know your you know your friend be it male or female spends a lot of time on their appearance and then you're like oh i i can't even look it's just i hate that i hate it
2: right uh, then Rayford, uh, throws more money around and like bribes the guy at the door to, to, to make sure that, um, uh, they can even get in. Oh, dude, he
1: does a big baller move. He's like, he's like, uh, my buddy Benjamin Franklin thinks we should have this table for an indefinite amount of time. And
2: uh, yeah, and he just like yeah, but but boot us out if it becomes like you know necessary. And the waiter's just like, hmm, I'm sure you'll not be disturbed. And like the bribe worked because they they were always attended well. Their water glasses are always
1: full. <laughs> it's just so funny, like that. I the tropes because we talked about like the mafia talk mm-hmm. in the first episode, but like the tropes that they choose to lean on in this book are so funny. That's a thing that I'm sure happens, you know, but like, it is such a tropey thing. So we get to the table and we have, this is a portion of the book that gets kind of repetitive. And, and you and I talked about this off mic, that the, the book does get quite repetitive mm-hmm. um, on a lot of things. They say the same prophecy things over and over again. They talk about the same plot beats from different characters' perspectives. Sometimes it works and it isn't really noticeable. Sometimes it is very noticeable. They go over again, the thousands of Jews joining the witnesses at the Wailing Wall and then going in and out and preach themselves. Um, the remnant is going to be a plot point, the 144,000, as we go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and Buck starts to crack a little because you, and I'm going to let you talk about this with Buck and Rayford switching perspectives, but we start to see Buck really start to kind of like turn on how he feels about everything.
2: Yeah, there was a, there was, There was actually uh, a a lot in this uh, this one particular section, especially when um, uh, Rayford's going into all this. First, like Buck starts saying, "Like, well, maybe Buck was going through a scary time when he where he was vulnerable to impressive people. That wasn't like him. But then, who was um, himself these days? Who could be expected to be like himself in times like these?" Uh, Then a very character defining moment for Buck is Buck um, uh, wanted to kind of like just stop the interview process and just ask Rayford. About his life, and the, there was one that I like line that I underlined here. Um, he wanted to ask Rayford Steele about his own sister-in-law and niece and nephew, but that would be personal, and that would not relate to the story he was working on. So Buck's obsession with work is even thrown out, like um, uh, kind of for a second. It's he starts having like a really human moment, and Buck starts being like, uh, like he's like, I'm supposed to be rounding up all these theories on why these disappearances happen, but like. Like something's pulling me towards this one that um, uh, Rayford is talking about. And Rayford, uh, it actually switches back to Rayford's perspectives. A- and Rayford is uh, in stark contrast. He's like, I-, I-, I don't even know if I'm getting through to Buck. I just sound like a rambling lunatic. I don't understand. But then it instantly cuts back to Buck. And he's just in like in his inner monologue. He's like, oh, my God, this is c- could this be it? So it, I really like how they actually do that here, where there's a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty from everyone's character's perspective, but it's not registering with the other characters. Like, they all think, feel like they're kind of being foolish, but um, uh, they're all kind of like just having like a big moment with each other.
1: Yeah, um, I totally, because I wrote a couple of lines down um, about Buck getting chills. Um, he's excited about everything Ray's saying. He wants to believe and i wrote down for the first time in his experience buck williams was speechless right i in before uh anybody listening thinks that this is too sudden of a turn uh for buck in a normal narrative it would be mm-hmm. that he just has this weird all of a sudden interest in this topic when he's normally a pretty level-headed, skeptical dude. In addition to him seeing the Gog and Magog incident, so he's witnessed something supernatural already. We are not counting, and this is something that is in between the lines and you kind of have to be brought up in church um, or at least be familiar with the doctrine to understand this, but Buck is implied to be experiencing the prompting of the spirit. hmm um, and this is something that gets talked about a lot in evangelical circles, that when you're close and you are open to it, that God will kind of prick your heart a little bit, just kind of poke you and sort of guide you in the right direction. You will feel the presence of the Holy Spirit, that portion of the Trinity, that sort of esoteric portion of the being of God that comes down and just says, hey, let's, uh, let's move in this direction, huh?
0: Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm.
1: hey, why don't, you, why, don't you, why don't you pull on that thread a little bit? And that all has to do with whether or not you were open to the idea, what the condition of your heart is, you know, what you, you know, whether or not you've opened yourself up to the possibility that God could exist or, you know, wants a personal relationship with you, has a plan for you. So if this seems sudden within the context of the doctrine where it's being written, it's not. This is a very specific type of Christian experience that is being portrayed here
2: mm-hmm. and I, it kind of flows back into like once you start like i think because i can kind of uh because i can uh look at that from a secular point of view as well and see that once you start becoming immersed in a in a community the 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 serendipity and the synchronicity like ramps up like a hundred percent um so that's kind of probably uh what we're delving into here is buck starting to um uh like become like immersed around all these um people with this one particular worldview and like things are starting to um uh Uh, I guess, connect, so to speak.
1: Yeah, that word synchronicity is important. We're humans and we look for patterns. So when you get people together of a similar spiritual belief, or at least who are kind of on the same track, you sort of start to yes and each other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, and, and at least that's my way of looking at it, which I know is kind of glass empty, but I think we can see it in a lot of different you know, sects and faiths. You know, worldwide, there's a lot of a group of like-minded people, yes-anding each other to a certain conclusion.
2: Right, putting their own like, uh, like, uh, just basically improving their own meta narrative.
1: Exactly. Yeah, they're they're that's how they put everything together. And I think that that's you know where we get a lot of religions. I think that's that's you know that's been my understanding of it. I've I've watched it happen firsthand growing up in church especially in a charismatic church where you have a lot of speaking in tongues, a lot of hand raising, a lot of, you know, faith healing, things like that. It's a lot of that. It's very emotional, very charged. And uh, at the end
2: of uh, this uh, little section where I'm uh, not, not the, the total, yeah, I actually, it is just a page before uh, 22. Buck Williams gets some uh, name dropped Bruce Barnes by Rayford and uh, basically gets invited to church.
1: Yes, he does. Uh, specifically, invited to church in Chicago with the the idea of using Bruce as a source for his article. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have the pieces move another step forward. Everybody at the table, very awkward but very emotional. Chloe's crying. Um, Hattie's uncomfortable. Uh, they come back to the bathroom upset. Like everybody's really having an outpouring of emotion here, and it's not really a good one. And in fact. Um, more of this casual misogyny. I think it's Buck that thinks to himself, what is it with these women? (laughs) Which just, I I don't know why the casual misogyny is any surprise at this point, but it's there. What is it? Yeah. I mean, I don't know, Buck. What is it with these women? Tell us what you're feeling, Buck. Yeah, tell us how you really feel, bud. Um, So everybody kind of hugs next, says their goodbyes, um, because Ray and Chloe are going to leave back for Chicago, and unbeknownst to them, Buck is going to move back, is going to leave for Chicago uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hattie says her goodbyes. And then to kind of cap off some of the meat, cute, Chloe tells Buck she had a great time. He takes her hand and says, I'm really going to miss you. And they're like, bye. So, you know, it's love at first wipe. Yep. Oh God, I hate that. That's now, a, <laughs> that's, that, that's the most
2: perfect description, but I hate it. <laughs>
1: Yep. So I'm sorry. Love at first bite, I think is what we said. That was way mm-hmm. better. <laughs> this is terrible. Oh. All right. So we move into chapter 22. We're we're rapidly um, increasing in pace here. So Buck is reeling. He's thinking about faith. He's thinking about Chloe. Like he's got the butterflies in his stomach. Like he's onto something. Um, His nose for news is really kind of taken off. And he actually has a reason to go to Chicago. He's not just being a creepy weirdo. He is also being a creepy weirdo, but it's not just to follow Chloe. Um, He has to go to Chicago because he has to replace Lucinda Washington. Because now he has taken the job as the editor of Global Weekly. He has to staff the offices of their subsidiaries. So he has to go to um Chicago to replace Lucinda who we met in the first part who was has been raptured and we start seeing a little bit of rays moments of reflection bleed over into buck
2: uh yeah like even the um uh because uh, buck even compares himself to rayford and like like because like buck's like i'm an ivy league kind of guy but yet even uh captain Steele, an organized analytical airline pilot had missed it and Steele claimed to have had a proponent a devotee an almost fanatic liver uh, uh, uh and almost a fanatic living under his roof yeah buck had always pride himself on standing apart from the fact um the whole buck and tradition angle uh for including the human the everyday the everyman element in stories when other resisted such vulnerability but now you're starting to see a lot of uh, the whole Rayford side coming into him where he's seeing like the Holy land attack as like a watershed event. He's starting to feel like a bit weird about um, uh, covering the whole, the whole story. He's starting to have like, well, you know, I'm, I'm covering all these theories, but I want to like highlight the one that I actually think might have some, like the most uh, credibility.
1: Right. And Buck is going into full um, what we would call seeker mm-hmm. mode. Um, This is another kind of evangelical term. He would be considered a seeker, someone who is opening themselves up, who feels that Holy Spirit prompting, who is looking to find salvation. But he's, there's a line, um, and I can't remember who said it, but it was something that they got tossed around a lot. I want to believe, but I need help with my unbelief. Ah, and I don't remember if that was a, there was a philosopher who said that or something, but that's a, that's a pretty, I heard that line thrown around in church a lot that you, you want to believe, you want to be part of this, uh, this religion, this experience, this faith, this relationship, but all of your mental blocks that you've put up, your skepticism, your rationality, you know, your, your own personal failings are in the way. That's a really dystopian line. It really super is. It gets kind of 1984 in a weird way. Like, and I think that that's, you know this is where the dark side of that comes in is it's no 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 you the the whole path to freedom is laid out before you you just have to forsake all of these things that make you who you are or these things that you have as part of your identity or your own better judgment you know that that's the the dark way of looking at it the kind of glass darkly for a Christian who you know truly believes it I'm sure what they would tell you is, we live in a world where the truth of God is obscured by sin and obscured by man's fall. What we are praying for is guidance to see where God is in all of this. Mm-hmm. Not so much to reject your reality or to reject your rationality, but to see the hand of God where your earthly self could not see it before.
2: And, uh, Oh, we actually, uh, we actually get into the line I was re- uh, referring to earlier. Um, Buckhead, Read and even written about those Kinds of people but even at His level of worldly wisdom he never Quite understood the phrase he always Considered the born again label to be Akin to ultra right winger Or fundamentalist uh, Hey uh, LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins Your bias
1: is showing <laughs> Dude they're absolutely approaching The point like like they're they're Running headlong into the point I actually wrote Uh yeah right after That line oh man They're telling on themselves it's really funny. So I wrote that kind of, you know, Buck's on a personal quest. Yeah. He wants to go meet Bruce. Um, he actually brings up a, a verse that I'm surprised didn't come up sooner. There is none righteous. No, not one. That's mm-hmm. the you are you are horrible. You are terrible. You are lower than low and you must accept salvation. From there, you know, Buck does a lot of the same sort of Rayford style hand wringing. Then we cut back to Ray. Right. Um, for more hand wringing. He has what I think is a really admirable moment. Like, this actually legitimately touched me. Like, all cynicism aside, he thinks to himself, if I could trade my salvation for Chloe's, I would do it. And, of course, any Christian is going to say, well, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't, hmm. um, at least in that doctrine. It doesn't. But that's the kind of self-sacrifice. Like, Ray's a good dude, yeah. man. He really is like he. he really loves his kid. You know he makes mistakes. He owns up to his mistakes. Like he's an actually admirable character that you could say that these books are guilty of making their two main boys into some Mary Sue's. I'm already bought in. I don't care. <laughs> like, I I think Ray is a really admirable guy. They're, I'm like he's a decent dad. Like at least he, he becomes one at least through his journey. Yeah,
2: and even like how he approaches like uh like sharing the faith like he's he's actively trying not to be like a bible thumper about it he's trying to let chloe have her own free will and come to these conclusions on her on her own so even with
1: that he's he's trying to approach this respectively yeah and you know he prays and he hears the voice of god you know in his heart because this is not one of those supernatural levels where the voice of god is literally speaking we're Mm -hmm. not there yet but he feels that prompting of just have patience, just just let her be.
2: Yep, and, uh, and uh, funnily enough, uh, there's a lot of parts of this book that are italicized. Uh, the the line that you mentioned, "There's righteous no not one," that's one of them. And um, uh, patience, letter B, letter B. It's almost like this is like your. Uh, it's almost like it's not like quite red letter level, but every time something's italicized, that's something that they're really being like, okay, this is like important right here
1: it's it is almost red letter level you're right because those those could be said as you know words of god like god kind of taking a minute to talk in the story mm-hmm. definitely so we find out in the next spit um that he actually gets an answer to his prayer mm-hmm so Buck um does his super creepo, move, oh God, he no, oh God, his this. seat to be next to Chloe, and I yeah, know it gets even creepier, all right, so he sits there. Buck does this thing, and i I wanted to see this on film of him sitting next to Chloe, very purposefully, almost doing the. <laughs> Ah, it sure is good to be me, Cameron Buck-Williams. If only someone noticed that me, Cameron Buck-Williams, was sitting next to her and wasn't looking out the window. Like, he's trying to get her attention without being a weirdo, and it just makes him even more of a weirdo. Yeah,
2: because Chloe, for some reason, for, like, the first bit of this, is just kind of staring out the window. I think she's like, she, I think she it confirms that she is actually praying in this Yes, moment. we
1: find out that she is praying. And- um,
2: but she's just like praying, looking out the window, and Buck's just sitting there like, when's she going to turn around? Even starts getting tired. Like Buck starts like, uh, legitimately starting to fall asleep. He's like, no, I want to be awake when she looks at me.
1: Oh, it's so weird. Like, dude, you're, you're overthinking this. You're making it weird. But so they start talking. Chloe's ecstatic because she we find out, has prayed to God for a sign that he cares about her. And lo and behold, she puts, or he puts her crush right in the seat next to her. And that's enough for Chloe. Chloe's like, nope, all right, you brought this hot reporter man right to me. I am a Christian now. I like
2: how that's the final, like, nail in the coffin for Chloe, too. (laughs) Like, I don't know, like, it's, 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 I can understand it, but it's just
1: like, eh. It's a weird moment. It's um, a little it, it it edges close to that casual misogyny thing because they had referred to her as boy crazy before. Mm-hmm. But overall it's a win in the inside the narrative of the story because she, you know, takes two empty seats behind her, calls her dad from the cockpit because Ray's flying the plane, so he puts it on autopilot, goes and sees his daughter, they pray together. We now have Chloe joining, you know, the ranks of the crew. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's she's on the born again side now. Especially with this weird moment of like Ray and Chloe kind of crying and hugging, being emotional. Uh-huh. And like this lady like looks across the aisle at them all weird and Ray's just like, she's my daughter.
2: And then the the woman just goes, "Right, and I'm the
1: queen of England." <laughs> Why is it hard to believe that the pilot's daughter happens to be on the plane? Like it would be more likely that the person he's crying with after this national tragedy is probably a relative or someone close. That's not weird, lady. Like I don't I don't
2: get it. Yeah, that was that's like bizarre. just the weird the, and the, that's like uh that's like just a random add-on to the, like the end of chapter 22. So like I guess they just threw that in there for
1: comedic effect i guess it doesn't land um but i think it's more another thing that we would be remiss not mentioning uh chloe tells buck not to wait Mm -hmm. don't tarry um, that's a, that's a big refrain that you hear throughout, uh, evangelical stuff. Don't, don't wait. You never know what can happen to you next. Yeah. And given yeah. what happens to Buck in the next couple of chapters, it's a good thing. He doesn't entirely wait. Right. So we move into chapter 23. We are, we're in the home stretch here. We got to bring this on home, Buck gets his meeting with Bruce Barnes. Mm-hmm. So now, Buck has, has met every major character in the book. You do it as part of the interview. They cut back and forth between um, Bruce and Buck and Ray and Chloe seeing CNN. And we confirm that Carpathia not only has become secretary general, but Nikolai Carpathia gets all of his demands. Mm-hmm. Moving to, you into New Babylon, 10-member security council. The world is even moving toward disarmament. That hasn't quite happened yet, but they're moving. They get the seven-year pact with Israel, the distribution of the formula. They even ask him about the one-world religion, and he's like, oh, sounds like a good idea. He actually says, I can think of little more encouraging than the religions of the world finally cooperating. The day of hatred is past. This is the bad guy. Yeah. Just, uh, spoilers, this is the bad guy. They are putting these words in his mouth that, uh, that apparently everyone getting along and not hating each other is a terrible thing. Right. I'm not going to stop highlighting that. This is, the, this is kind of the backwards, super backwards worldview that we're looking at here. So they talk about one world currency, one world government, one world religion. And he says, the idea of a one world government resonates deep within me. So he's already talking about this and they are fast tracking this stuff at a level which in any realistic scenario is ridiculous. It is ludicrous to think that this stuff would move that fast, if at all uh nikolai calls for buck to meet him in new york with a bunch of his top people they're going to meet at the un building uh someone writes nikolai is pure as the driven snow i don't remember who said that buck is going to be the only member of the press asked to meet on monday nikolai also asks to meet hattie as well so hattie's still in the still in the game here Mm -hmm. um so we cut back to ray he offers to get chloe her own bible uh, Bruce welcomes her to the family. They they kind of talk a little bit about, um, they kind of bring Chloe up to speed on the prophecy and the goings-on of the tribulation. Chloe joins New Hope's core group. The a sort of green berets of, uh, aka your tribulation force as- um, Oh, you dropped it. We had the title drop. All right. So I, can we take a minute and talk about tribulation force as an idea? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Oh my God. <laughs> This is one of my, come on, guys, moments. Inside of the New Hope core group, Bruce wants to form an even tighter group, like a a circle within a circle of folks who are able-bodied, well-connected Christians who are there to fight against the machinations of the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. He wants to bring together a group of remarkable people. (laughs) bring about a day unlike any other so to speak
2: we get into the whole mark of the beast here because like they they, they're because um they all say that we got to identify who the antichrist is and then speak out upon them because they'll become a time where everyone who follows them will be forced to um, bear the sign of the beast
1: yeah and so they have a real like early 2000s superhero origin story moment where they're like we need a group a team like you know a force you got it a force (sighs) yeah the tribulation force
0: no, no, no. and that just uh, oh. <laughs> oh god
1: <laughs> it's awful it is so silly it is it's uh, it's very silly like it is probably the campiest this book gets is them starting to call themselves the tribulation force mm-hmm. Get used to it. It ain't going away. They're going to, and then especially once they start to shorten it, they abbreviate it to trib force. What? In a lot of ways worse, but oh yeah. And uh, we're going to talk about the mark of the beast for a minute. Mm -hmm. And you know that this is going to be a plot point because there's a book in the series called the mark which uh which book is that uh it's like eight maybe okay
2: gotcha so we're, we're deep in okay
1: yeah yeah we are way in so the they talk about the sign of the beast a tattoo a mark on the forehead only visible under infrared so the mark of the beast thing
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's actually in the bible they talk about a mark on the forehand or the forehead and no man could buy or sell without possessing this mark Just like the trope of Antichrist, the mark of the beast is used in every era of Christianity to point out something that they think is bad. Like, it's been social security numbers it's been zip codes microchips it's qr codes it's been so many things throughout history so many scary new technological advances but the fact that they say oh yeah it could be this mark that's only invisible under infrared all i can think of is just like especially when you go into like certain clubs and venues and stuff the little stamp they put on your hand that you can only see under black <laughs> light <laughs> like the bouncer just like shines the black light over your palm and it's like you're good come on So Buck um, having his meeting with Bruce, they have a real kind of honest conversation. Um, Bruce kind of tells his life story over again. This gets a little repetitive, but mm-hmm. he tells Buck what you and I have already been talking about. God's trying to get your attention. Mm-hmm. And Buck's like, well, he's got it now. They kind of recap all the information about the Antichrist, the how the Antichrist is a deceiver with the power to control men's minds. Buck finally puts it all together, that he's pretty positive Nikolai is the Antichrist. The reason he's able to do this is because the announcement for all the things that um, Nikolai is going to do, Bruce hasn't seen it. And yet he brings up everything with the seven years, the Babylon, um, the one world government, the one world currency. All this apparently is in the Bible. We're going to talk about in some future episodes about whether or not it is truly in the Bible because that's.
2: I'm not sure if you mentioned this because I kind of like zoned out for a second. But um, uh, they um uh, they even say like Bruce or uh, Buck at first is just like, is Bruce getting all this from
1: CNN? Exactly. Yeah. So things are starting to fall into place. And Bruce is like, hey, man, mm-hmm. don't, don't go to this meeting with Carpathia. You don't have protection. You don't have a divine, what they would call in, in Christianity, a hedge of protection around you. A lot of times you'll hear people talk about praying a hedge of protection around someone. But he's like, look, I got to go. And Bruce asks Buck to accept Christ, join the tribulation Force, And he's this close, but he doesn't do it. Yeah. Uh, but he does ask for a Bible. So he, he leaves with a He gets a Bible.
2: Big refusal of the call moment for. Uh...
1: Yeah. Yeah. He has, a, he has a heroic refusal of the call. Like a um, he chooses not to, uh, not to go immediately to Alderon in that moment. Mm-hmm. Bruce, um, he has that conversation with Buck. Buck then calls up Steve and he's like, hey, man, like some, something's going on. Like you got to talk to me. And Steve can't. Mm-hmm. And Steve's like, hey, Buck, stop doing what you're doing. Like, I know what you're doing. I know you're trying to track this down. Stop. And he's like, why? And then he goes, Buck, Staten Island.
2: Yeah, because like even he's, uh, he kind of touches on like, well, is, isn't there anyone like in the media that's like been talking about um, uh, someone fitting a bill for uh, the, the villains in the book of Revelation? And uh, that's kind of his answer. Um, that he like dodges the kind of allude to like, Hey, this guy was doing it, but uh, now he's dead.
1: Yeah. He's, he's threatening him with Eric Miller's fate. Mm -hmm. He's saying like, you're going to get in trouble. And Buck actually ends up talking to Miller's widow and she's, kind of that's helping the pieces kind of fall into place
2: oh wait there's uh there's something that we're actually missing real like that's crucial oh hit me buck is uh buck has a bit of doubt on who because like buck is definitely like um uh he's sold on the antichrist idea but he's not sure who and he has two leads he either thinks it's gonna be stone or carpathia and his hunch is on stone
1: right because carpathia is just too good and how could the how could the great deceiver be this guy which like this is written in a way that again kind of talks down to the audience like Christian are going to be like well obviously it's the peace nick Mm -hmm. they have another conversation ray and bruce do about carpathia being the antichrist get some more weird racial stuff in there like hey uh, romanians mostly dark oh god Um, yeah oof. his ancestry is roman hence the blonde hair and blue eyes i'm sorry what Uh. all right this is just the weird racial stuff like okay roman's uh, not traditionally. I don't know if you've ever been to Rome or yeah, not a lot of blonde-haired, blue-eyed folks, uh, mm-hmm. generally speaking, in that part of the world. Got to go a little further north for that. It's not typically what you associate with Italian heritage, which is super weird. And then they start painting Hattie as this kind of just vapid easy lay Mm -hmm. um about and so there's more of that that she's kind of that she's standing carpathia super hard so buck does go to church on that sunday because he has to fly out monday for the meeting Mm -hmm. um and and ray and chloe see him in church and then he does another weird creepy thing um by leaving a note on chloe's door talking about i want to come back and see you um i can't hide my attraction to you please pray for me Leaves a note on her front door. Oh, God, I, I missed. He just comes right out with it. Yeah, I missed that when I read today. Oh, my God. Ugh. He, goes to, uh, he goes to New York. Um, this is a lot of Buck stuff for the, uh, for the next little bit here. Goes to New York. He ref- specifically refers to the influence of the Antichrist as the voodoo or the heebie-jeebies yeah yeah um uh
2: all the way to the united nations he agonized do i pray he asked himself do i pray the prayer as so many of these people said yesterday morning would i be doing it just to protect myself or from the voodoo or the heebie-jeebies
1: yeah so buck makes his way inside the building and everybody is turned out to see this this big uh un press conference and Buck has been invited into a meeting before the press conference, and as he's walking down the hallways, he just feels a disturbance in the force. He literally feels this, what they would call an oppressive spirit, like the sick feeling in the pit of his stomach, like a dark, evil pressing almost on your chest is kind of how they describe it. And that's another thing that you hear about in church. When you're in like a bad spot, you can feel the demonic oppression or the the sense of evil. You know, it's very kind of Star Wars. Right. And he prays in that moment for God to protect him. He's like, "Hey, I, I, I need some protection." God wonders to himself if he can pray, even though he's not a he's not a saved. And the the
2: first time that he does it, nothing happens, really. Like he, he 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 feels nothing the first time that he does it when he's walking and then even uh let's see he sits like he gets into the press conference room after uh, just like crossing the threshold into this room and overcoming that this weird feeling and uh, he, he gets a perfect vantage point of everything going on so he gets a clear view of uh, the entire stage. And uh, he, he turns for a minute and she's like, all right, I need five minutes to like, or I need a minute to collect my thoughts. And um, uh, Steve's like, all right, you only got five minutes, like get going.
1: Yeah, he has almost a panic attack right. when he gets in that room and he needs, he's like, I need to find the washroom.
2: And uh, he goes into a, uh, a a washroom, places a Jander's bucket outside so no one would come in, locks the door and just puts his hands to, um, in his pockets, drops his chin to his chest and just uh, like does a full audible pray yeah and he believes it like this is this is he this was no experiment, no half hard attempt he, he wasn't just hoping or trying something else he he basically like mainlines direct to God in that moment
1: yep and there we go, boys. our final uh, point of view character has achieved salvation he is he walked in a skeptic he walked out of that bathroom a christian um you know so this is a big win moment for Buck, but he's about to walk into lion's den
2: right and it's uh i kind of like uh, how i use the term refusal of the call because if you look at like the you know the chart that i uh, i refer like the monomyth chart uh, uh, he's about to enter the abyss right here
1: yeah and i when th- this prayer moment happens there is you can almost hear and i'm gonna keep making star wars illusions because there is a lot of heroes journey step with buck where you can almost hear like the the force music the he leaves, he walks into the room, and he starts seeing all of, his, all of his friends and all the people that he knows. He sees Carpathia, he sees Steve, he sees Stoneagle, he sees Todd catherine he sees Rosenzweig, and last but not least, he sees Patty Durham. Mm. At this inner circle meeting for the most powerful man on earth, there is the flight attendant who just a couple of weeks ago told him he could not vandalize that airplane's phone
2: yeah that's a that's a it's a big shift for hattie that's only gonna get even more wild um uh, once we get into the next book yeah it is but uh so uh, carpathia starts going around like introducing to everybody but then like once he get like even says like carpathia has this like litany um including appropriate name and title and uh, but when he gets to buck he hesitates and he says, Mr. William, I-, I welcome you to the team and confer upon you all the rights and privileges that goes along with your station. And Buck is a bit weird because he's like, what do you mean? Like, um, uh, t- to himself, he's he's he doesn't really fully understand because he already had all of that conferred to him. You know, like he was there on job business. He didn't need to be given permission to do anything.
1: So I, I want to jump into this real quick. Okay. Did this seem like, it was supposed to be echoing like a, a almost like masonic initiation or something. Yes, it did. Carpathia is going around the room, and I, I'm not a mason. Um, I don't, I don't have any member family members that are or anything, and not that they could tell me anything if they were. But the way Carpathia goes around the room, shakes their hand, embraces them, each member, and looks them straight into the eye, and says the same litany over and over again. I welcome you to the team and confer upon you all the rights and privileges of your station. And uh, may you display to me and those in your charge the consistency and wisdom that have brought you to this point. And he's saying it, and everyone's kind of falling literally under his spell. Yeah, he's doing it. It is. He, he's doing. He's doing some magic here. Um, we get our first moment of real kind of sinister magic coming out of this guy. He's he's putting. I wrote, he's putting the whammy on him,
2: right? And it's interesting because Buck is seeming like uh, even like very um, subtly, and not, well, not too subtly, but it's um uh, they don't hit it quite on the nose. Is a uh, Buck is actually able to resist this? Like he doesn't even like say anything when um uh, when Carpathia like says this to him, and even Carpathia's like, oh, you know what, you're most welcome. Even though he doesn't say thank you, my slightly overcome and tongue-tied friend, Carpathia. It kind, I think cuts kind of notices what's happening and just covers He's it on up. to
1: him. Yeah. He's onto him at least a little bit um, because this is all very important because we see what's going to happen next. And this, if you were on board up until this point, this is, you've, you've been here for the pledge, the turn. We're about to hit the prestige. Here we go. Carpathia goes around the room, gets to Jonathan Sonigal, his oldest friend, his biggest backer, welcomes him to the team. Stonegal is insulted.
2: Yeah, yeah, Stoneagle, um Wrenches his hand away. Yeah, kind of has his, the the a same thing as Buck, but yet he's more like, he's more um, overt with his refusal.
1: Basically, don't talk down to me, I made you what you are. As a response...
2: He, uh, well, he, he calls over the guard, and uh, he's just like, well, one of my techniques is my power of observation combined with a... Pro- um. A uh, prestigious uh, memory. He start. He 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 very casually mentions. You know what, Mister Guard, uh, Mister Otterness. Um, uh, I think the the person's name is um uh, Yeah, Scott. Yeah, Scott. He's like, you know, Scott. I can tell you the make and model of the caliber of the weapon you carry on your hip. I will not look as you remove it and display it to the group. And Stonegal like starts having a panic attack, like he's hyperventilating
1: because it's super weird and menacing. Like he's like, take your gun out. Yeah, it's, show everybody. Yeah, sh- show everybody. This now gun. give me the gun. Now give it to me. And he announces exactly what he's going to do next. He's like, now, Jonathan stand over here i'm gonna shoot you in the head
2: yeah and this, this like so the first time I, I listened to this i was uh i was just working and like i kind of zoned out for a little bit um uh, but this is where like it caught my attention i'm like oh god what because just like within a few pages full left turn of where this th- this scene is heading he tells stone a goal to rise and um uh and then kneel yeah and then kneel and then stone goes like I-, I won't do that and he's like oh no you're gonna kneel for me and everyone starts kind of freaking like Nikolai, what are you doing and uh carpe is like everyone sit down yep oh uh, and then and then you get i think this is my favorite line in the entire book just because of how sinister it is he looks at hattie and goes my dear you'll want to slide your chair back about three feet as to not soil your outfit just casually
1: to Hattie Durham. And she goes, what? Uh, he actually says hair, skin, skull tissue, and brain matter <laughs> will hit you if you don't move. Oh. Um, and then he says, I see part of my role as a teacher. I don't need your help anymore. Talking to and I mean, you can just hear the light strings of like, you know, classical music starting to play while he's, Just with calm ease, just effortlessly directing this room as he's about to kill this guy. Also, when Stoneagle is dead, I'm going to tell you all what you remember. And he also ends up killing Todd Cawthorne too with the same bullet. This really bothered me. It's a 38 special. If he's using defense rounds, it's a hollow point. It's not going to pierce through Stone Eagle's body. It's going to get caught in there.
2: This is his devil voodoo gun magic.
1: Yeah, if he's, uh, maybe he's got JFK bullets. I don't know. If he's using a full metal jacket round, like an actual practice round, like it's going to, it is going to pass through both men, but it's probably not going to do the same amount of damage in order to kill Catherine. It might kill, it's definitely going to kill Stone Eagle, but I, it just bothered me from the <laughs> ballistic side of things. I'm like, it's 38 special, dude. Like, I mean, just, just shoot them both. Like shoot, shoot one guy, then sh- shoot the other guy. Come on. So it gets, everything gets hectic. He places the gun in Stoneagle's hand and goes, Oh my God, what a tragedy. He killed himself. And he shot Todd Cothran too. It was awful. And everyone believes it. Everybody's been, completely jedi mind tricked the whole except for buck yeah buck is the only one who sees what actually happens so now the moment that this happens is is very harrowing and it's very dark and it's it absolutely succeeds at cementing nikolai as here's our bad guy
2: right uh and like and like i said like this this was actually shocking for me like this this threw me off guard and i think i don't know this scene is- it's very, very effective in what it's, trying, what it's trying to do, like you were saying. And um, Buck has this moment, like, after this happens, he doesn't know what to do. But then you get another, like, italicized God moment where God tells Buck to just, like, don't say anything. D- just stay
1: quiet. Yeah, act like he's stunned. And, and you still don't know whether or not Carpathia's is onto him. So I just want to say he's evil. He's a murderer. Nikolai remains my favorite character. He's my boy. I'm so proud of his ascendancy. Good job, dude. Uh, He's fantastic. He even actually gives almost a Lannisters always pay their debts moment to Buck where he's like, didn't I tell you I was going to take care of these two men? Now I've done it.
2: Yeah, I like how both of our favorite characters get this big moment in this scene. It's a
1: nice... uh... (laughs) It's fantastic. I love him. So Buck leaves. He is traumatized, panicked. Yeah. Then finds out no one remembers him being there, including... Eve, who was in the room yeah and it's a big point of
2: contention because you're like listen like we, we get you all these pre- press credentials we give you all this stuff and you're not even gonna use them like what are you doing man like you yeah get down here you're
1: fired buddy yep mr daly fires him from the executive position he just hired him for but he's too good of a journalist williams you're too good so he keeps him around as a staff writer not in new york but in chicago Right. And uh,
2: I'm pretty sure um, there's also this moment where like Buck gets uh, like trades business cards with like a detective in the room. And like, I'm pretty sure that this guy's gonna die now.
1: Probably. Yeah. So the book finally reaches its conclusion. Buck frantically gets on the phone to Ray and Chloe and goes, look, Carpathia is your guy. He's your man. I'm coming to Chicago. I want to be part of this tribulation force. He flies to Chicago, which is now going to be his home. So everybody's. All four members of the force are now part of, they're now living in Chicago and they meet Buck at O'Hare. All four of our fantastic four meet in the terminal and we close out the book with, the task of the tribulation force was clear, to stand and fight the enemies of God during the most chaotic years the world would ever see. Q
2: Avengers music right there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think in this last section, like does, uh, does he officially, join the tribulation force in this last or is that start does, or does that like next step happen in uh, book two
1: i think he says on the phone he wants to
2: okay gotcha yeah so he's at least like interested because i know there's a like right before like he tries to join before but he gets turned down like he's like no this is only for like uh, bruce is like no this is only for our, like correct yeah that, yeah that
1: happened a little earlier and he actually offered to join and bruce told him no but now he's got the salvation merit badge so he can join yeah so that brings us to the end of Left Behind, a novel of Earth's last days. What are we thinking, Gavin? How, how, did, this, how did your first foray into a Left Behind book leave you feeling as we wrap up you, here? You know,
2: it, there was a lot of, like, when I first got into it, um, it was, I, I was kind of like off foot at first. I was like, okay, this is kind of like, this was really stor- of slow storytelling and a little bit awkward. But like, as I got to the end of this, like, I am fully invested. Like, I've all, I'm already listening to book two. I'm like, just it, this d- did its job like I now like am fully invested and go okay what does the other 14 have have in store <laughs> if this is like your if this is your your call to adventure your uh your first um uh, part of the the larger story like what are we gonna get into next totally. and just uh and based on like what I know about like revelation and how um uh and just uh kind of stories in general I'm like looking at some parts and just going Oh, how are they going to do that? Or, Oh my God. Or, is, or, um, uh, or looking at a character and go, Oh, this, is this going to be their like end game?
1: Look, I, I'm going to tell you without spoiling, if you're already doing that and if you listening at home are already looking at revelation going, how are they going to do that? How are they going to do that? Stay off of Wikipedia, stay off of plot summaries because you're not going to be disappointed. It only gets weirder from here. So next week, I think we're going to do a little bit more of a lighter episode, a little bit shorter, just kind of breaking down some of the trivia and kind of our general thoughts about the first book before we get into book number two, Tribulation Force. But that's going to wrap it up for this weekend's episode of I Survived the Rapture. Thank you so much for listening. I have been Shane Bazell, and I have been Gavin Russell. And we'll see you guys next week. And until then, don't let the Antichrist take your gun. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, You can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening.
0: And lead you astray